And one story that always kind of captures my imagination. The streets lost culture. <laughs> and you're listening to Kerning Cultures. Hi, this is Dana. We won't be releasing any new episodes for the next couple of months. We're away producing and reporting our autumn season, which will be out in September. But in the meantime, we want to bring back a few of our favorite episodes from the past. And if you're new to Kerning Cultures, you might not have heard them before. So we hope you enjoy them. This week's episode is called Elephants in the Desert, and it originally aired in September 2020. Here's Kerning Cultures co-host Hibba Fisher. Our story today takes place a really long time ago. Seven million years ago, actually. So around the beginnings of when the first human-like creatures started walking around on two legs. But it's not a story about humans, at least not directly. Now, when I say seven million years ago, I don't mean just some vague period in history. I'm talking about this one specific day. There's this group of scientists who have been obsessed with what happened on that day, actually about what happened within those 24 hours. Because what happened, which we'll get to in a minute, it turns out, tells us a lot about our own lives today. Are you intrigued yet? You should be. I'm going to pass it off now to producer Alex Atak, who told the story to producer Zaina Zouidar. Last time I had to edit out loads of, I've got a really squeaky chair, and it's the only chair that can fit in my studio. So last time I had to like edit out like all the the parts where I'm like speaking more emphatically are the parts where the chair gets like squeakier. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we'll try to try to keep it uh, a little calmer (laughs) this (laughs) time. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to tell me? how you found this story? Uh, Yeah, sure. I guess really like the story that I want to tell you, I guess it starts in the Western region of the UAE. So if you're like looking at the UAE from the top and you draw a line down the middle of the UAE, like kind of like everything to the left of that line is um, Al-Qarbeya, which is the, the Western region. It's the largest region in the country but it's the smallest in population density. So it's it's a very kind of rural part of the country, very isolated. But what it what it is kind of known for is uh, this region within the area called the Bainuna River, which is about a two-hour drive west of Abu Dhabi. Where you have rocks that are about seven million years old, and these rocks are full of fossils of different kinds of animals. This is Faisal Bibi. He's a paleontologist at the Natur Kunde Museum, uh, which is the Natural History Museum in Berlin, Germany. And uh, just so that we're all on the same page with uh, what a paleontologist is. Paleontologist is basically someone who studies fossils. And a fossil can be any trace of life in the past. Uh, and Faisal's been conducting field research in the Western region for around a decade now. Which uh, most people, even if they've lived decades in the UAE, have actually never been to. Because there isn't really any reason to. Like, I've I lived in the UAE for probably going on most of my life, and I never never really went to this area. Like, I would never really have gone past Abu Dhabi. Because it's an area of basically um, oil refineries and um, expanses of of desert and um, kind of um, there's military out there. But the thing that is out there is this kind of area that is well known amongst paleontologists now because of this thing that they call the Bainuna River, which is an ancient river that used to be there about seven or eight million years ago. And as that river was depositing all sorts of sands and gravels, it also preserved fossil remains 
so bits of bone belonging to a huge diversity of creatures. And you ride on the water and you have all these beautiful, colorful rocks and there are all these bones around. This is Bill Sanders. Uh, he's a research scientist at the University of Michigan Museum of Paleontology. Uh, he's done a bunch of field work with Faisal in the Bainuna area. I spoke to him over Zoom, so that's why the audio is a bit crackly. It's an incredibly beautiful, austere place to work, but it's just perfect for finding fossils because there's no cover. When the river was kind of active around seven or eight million years ago, it would have been home to like a pretty diverse wildlife so that they, they talked about monkeys uh, having lived there, like crocodiles, you know, large, large kind of elephant species. So what you're looking at basically is probably kind of a dry savanna landscape. So you'll have um, kind of grasslands, um, extending off into the distance. Everything would be kind of centered around this large, slow-moving river. And I mean, considering the region today, like what it looks like today, you know, it's totally unimaginable. Like today, if you were to drive out there, you would see what you can kind of imagine the UAE desert to look like, like very barren expanses of land, um, sand dunes, uh, some kind of rock formations, rock features, but... It isn't a landscape that you can ever imagine, like a, a river having been there at any point in time. Um, and is it is it an, is it a unique like area in terms of fossils in the UAE? Like, is there anywhere else in the UAE similar? No, and there's nowhere else similar actually in the entire um, Arabian Peninsula. So the first time like anybody really ever started to document like the prehistory of this area was in the 1940s. Oil means money. It's worth nearly $6,000 million a year around the Persian Gulf alone. The first report of fossils from this area um, came from oil surveys. So when geologists were surveying across the Arabian Peninsula and writing reports, their principal concern was oil and mineral deposits. It makes the desert rich. It brings the prospectors and the lawyers and the map makers to divide it. They discovered like some fossils and some ancient animal bones, but they didn't really, I mean, there wasn't really anything done about it because um, it wasn't really their intention, like they were looking for oil. And then in around 2002, there was this guy called Mark Beach. My name is Dr. Mark Jonathan Beach. I'm head of archaeology for the Al Dafra and Abu Dhabi capital region. And uh, in 2002, he was working out in the Western region and his local guide, an Emirati guy who had like lived in the area his whole life, he suggested that they go together because he said he had something that he wanted Mark to see. He said he knew of a special place in the desert where um, he described it as being where there were footprints of, of giant camels. So they drive together uh, in their 4x4 to the site and they stop outside this row of basically mounds in the ground so they're about the size of a kind of each one's about the size of a kitchen sink, and they stretch out in a kind of footprint pattern for about 200 meters. And these are calcium-rich rocks that were actually made by ancient shallow ponds that would quickly dry out and turn to mud. The way Bill put it to me was that they aren't, they aren't natural, like they aren't a rock formation. You can kind of tell that they've been left there by some sort of organism, but that they've been, they're a kind of product of a disturbance in the sand. So Mark, standing there, looking at what he'd been told were giant camel footprints, had this kind of feeling that these whitish mounds that they were looking at on the floor were something more significant. 
site and we contacted the municipality at that time to make sure that the site was protected by being fenced, a fence being put around it to keep it you know, safe for future because um, we realised it was a very important site. They kind of um, undertake a proper paleontological study of the, uh, of the footprints and what they found was that they are ancient elephant footprints. I asked all the paleontologists, like, can you just like explain what am I thinking? Am I thinking of an elephant or are I thinking of some like weird hybrid that I can't imagine? And basically what they all said to me was, yeah, I mean, imagine an elephant, but much, much bigger than you than you could think of as an elephant today. So so Bill told me, I think that if you saw them, they wouldn't be like woolly mammoths. They would be nearly naked like elephants today with that kind of wrinkled skin that elephants have today. If you went back in time and you saw one out of the corner of your eye moving across the landscape, you would say, oh, there's an elephant over there. You would have, if you took a second look at it, you'd say, whoa, but it's, look at how big it is and look at those tusks. And, and I doubt that any predators of the time would have messed with them because they're, they're just so big. And those tusks would have been an, put on an impressive display. In case you wanted to know, uh, the scientific name for this uh, particular elephant ancestor is Stegotetrabelodonts. Could you break that down for me? What does each part of it mean? Yeah, the, the stego part refers to the construction of their teeth, but the important part is the tetrabelodont part because that refers to tetra being four and belodont is a tusk. So they're four tusks. So the way that they uh, like figured out how big these elephants were is by measuring their stride length. So you, you measure uh, the space between each footstep and from there you can draw a correlation to things like body mass and shoulder height. So these were very heavy uh, elephants. We could tell that right away just from stride length. When I measured the footprints and then tried to compare them with modern studies of footprint size to body weight, they are off the chart. So they were larger than any modern footprints, any modern trackways that had ever been measured. And um, just to give you an idea of how big that would be, many people have heard of the famous captive African elephant Jumbo that was... He was the biggest circus star of all time, Jumbo the elephant. Okay, so the biggest elephant in the public imagination is an elephant called Jumbo the elephant. I don't know if you've heard of it. No... Okay, maybe I'm too deep in the elephant world that yeah, I just like think just of this casual, as like... <laughs> like everyday knowledge about Jumbo the yeah. Elephant. Okay, I thought, okay, so Jumbo the Elephant was this uh, quite well-known uh, African bush elephant. Step right up, see an animal so big, so colossal, so downright enormous that his name became synonymous with large. Who was paraded around the world as part of a circus. Uh, on display with the Ringling Brothers... Barnum and Bailey Circus for a while and then... And, I mean, when you kind of think of uh, large elephants in the public imagining, Jumbo the elephant is sort of like thought of as one of the biggest elephants that humans have known. And today we think of it in terms of maybe a jumbo box of detergent or a jumbo size this or a jumbo size that. But it's all traceable to this huge African male elephant that thrilled American audiences in the 1880s. And at death, his body mass was measured at a little over 6,000 kilograms. And so if you look at a picture of him, there's a guy standing in front of him, and the top of his head is like 
easily double the size of the guy standing in front of him. So we're talking the height of two people. Um, and so Jumbo weighed around 6,000 kilograms. These uh, stegotetrabellodonts in Abu Dhabi, they would have weighed around 10,000 kilograms. What is 10,000 kilograms? Like, what what on earth right now is, is 10,000 kilograms? That's a good question. Uh, let's find out. The Measure of Things is a website. Okay. 10,000 kilograms is uh, two and a half times as heavy as a car, six and a half times as heavy as a cow, eight and a half times as heavy as a grizzly bear, 10 times as heavy as a grand piano, uh, 20 times as heavy as the heart of a blue whale. Okay. I think we've we've gone down that list far enough now. Uh, but anyway, uh, back to Faisal and his team. Uh, studying these elephant footprints in the Abu Dhabi desert in 2012. When they figured out uh, exactly what they were and how big these elephants would have been, surprisingly, it wasn't like a super mind-blowing discovery in paleontology land. You know, there's a lot of footprint sites out there in the world, and there are a lot of actually elephant or elephant-relative footprint sites um, in the world. And they're they're mostly um, cool, but generally unremarkable. The real big deal, uh, the kind of the kind of big deal of the story is what they discovered next. This episode is sponsored by Tap Payments. If you have a website or an application or sell products online and you need a payment gateway to send and accept payments to your customers, GoSell from Tap Payments provides you with an easy, fast, and secure payment gateway. Tap features include activating and linking your site with a click of a button. It supports all of Saudi Arabia and Gulf banks. It supports all the preferred payment methods for your customers in Saudi Arabia and abroad. TAP is licensed by the Gulf Central Banks and serves more than 70,000 merchants in the Gulf and the region. Find out about GoSell through the link provided in the show notes. When we left off, uh, Faisal and his team were in the desert of Abu Dhabi uh, studying these ancient elephant footprints. And uh, although they didn't know it yet, they were right on the edge of what would become a major discovery. Which was really the kind of the eureka moment of the site. Um, it was when we f got the first images from the aerial photography. So Faisal told me that if you're kind of standing in front of them, it's kind of hard to make out really what you're looking at. Standing on the site, you are so small in relation to the, the, the enormity of the footprints, the enormity of the site. And this, your scale, your size as a, as a 1.5 meter human being standing on this site that's hundreds of meters large does not allow you to actually even see what you have. It's very hard to see it. But what they had to do was um, they got this uh, specialist, this like guy who specializes um, in, uh, he would rig a DSLR camera, so like a kind of um, professional camera to a kite. And then they would fly the kite to take pictures from above. And it involved hacking the camera software so that the camera would be taking continuous pictures and then knowing how to attach it to the kite and having different kites that could handle different wind speeds and things. So uh, we took him to the site and he spent several days walking back and forth with this kite uh, with the camera suspended from it 
and just having the kite uh, take all these pictures. And then when we would get back to the hotel in the evenings, he would start to make uh, rough assemblies of these photos, building the kind of the mosaic of the site. And as soon as we, we looked at one of these first mosaic, we were like, oh, wow, that looks like a real herd. When they took the footprints from above, they realized that, um, you know, it isn't just one elephant walking in a straight line. In fact, it's a herd of elephants. And you could see a variety of sizes. Some of them were little, some of them were, were big. And then you could see, you know, that here's some footprints of, of an individual that must have been an infant walking along with them. And then some of the footprints are kind of small, maybe juveniles walking along. So now they don't just have the evidence um, that an early ancestor of elephants existed seven million years ago, because uh, that was already known, but also that they behaved in much the same way that elephants do today. They could draw a straight line between these ancient elephants and elephants that exist in the world today. So you're looking at a herd moving across the landscape, frozen in time from maybe as old as seven or more than seven million years. and. I just cried. I <laughs> just burst into tears. This was the first time that Bill was visiting the site. Uh, Faisal had already been there studying it for some time by this point. And then Faisal said, come on, come with me. I want to show you something else. So we walked along this, this trackway. And then about midway along the trackway, here's another set of prints, really large, larger than anything in the trackway, cutting right across it and going off for like about 160 meters or so. Halfway across this straight line of, uh, you know, this trackway that was the herd walking in a straight line, you have a diagonal line coming straight through it and walking off in a completely opposite direction. A single elephant, lone elephant walking alone, that's walking in a completely different direction to the herd, and that elephant happens to be the biggest. And you had to think that, just like in modern elephants, the adult male bulls are off on their own and they often check out the herd, see if any females are, you know, in estrus and, and ready to mate. Do you have any idea or indication of how, like, how far apart in time it would have been when the herd crossed and then the, the male crossed? Would that have been, you know, the same day, the same year, the same hundred years? Oh, Do you no, it would, have been, it would have been very quickly. This had to have been done in the matter of I would say a matter of hours, not a matter of days. Oh, wow. So same day, probably. So what? So these trackways, they are basically a snapshot of one day seven million years ago. Yeah, that's a perfect term. It's just extraordinary to see, here's all this modern behavior at the very inception of elephants. So it was a very emotional moment for me. It was my favorite day of the whole time and maybe my favorite day. I've done field work now for about 34, 35 years. And so this may have been my favorite day of all the field work I've ever done. To have this type of behavior preserved so nicely, so extensively, and in a single site is really absolutely remarkable. And it's the only place in the world where you have that. And so in the kind of animal behavior studies world, this, this was like a, this was a really big deal. Good morning. Hello. Hi, how are you? Can you hear me? Okay. Yes. And I should say good afternoon. <laughs> this is Barbara J. King. Uh, I interviewed her over Zoom. 
She's an emeritus professor of anthropology at William and Mary, which is a college in Williamsburg, Virginia, in the US. And basically, she writes a lot about social behavior in animals. She has a book uh, called How Animals Grieve. And in 2012, when Faisal's study came out, she was writing blog posts for NPR in the US. And I found this elephant trackway story to be exactly that, because elephants are such fascinating creatures to me. She's always written about uh, what trackways can tell us about our own human ancestors. She said she often tells her students about uh, some human ancestor trackways in Tanzania, which go back to about 3.6 million years. So I came across the study by Bibi. That's uh, Faisal Bibi. I thought, my gosh, these trackways are dated to twice as old, not 3.6 million years ago, but 7 million years ago. Barbara's written extensively about emotional complexity in elephants in her book, the one I mentioned earlier. It's got a picture of an elephant on the front and about how they display signs of joy at reunion, grief when they're when one of their own dies, um, awareness of one another's position in the herd, etc. And uh, at this point in the interview, I was, I was getting really excited and started to kind of think that, you know, that means that our elephants in Abu Dhabi um, from seven million years ago must have had the same kind of complex emotional inner lives as uh, elephants today and she was like you can't necessarily think of it like that but but the trackways do indicate that there is this complex way of arranging themselves into herds that to me suggests very strongly the continuous presence from the past to now of thinking and feeling in elephants yeah because do you mean because like if they lived in herds then that demonstrates some sort of social complexity in its own right. It does. But, you know, what we have now, I don't believe that that kind of complexity emerged recently. And I think that it is scientifically viable and really scientifically correct to expect some degree of thinking complexity and emotion complexity in the past. We can't know exactly what, Mm -hmm. but the fact that it would be absent is just a non-starter of an idea. The idea of this herd of giant elephants with these complex emotional inner lives traveling around the UAE way, way before humans had developed like our own emotions or societies, it really kind of hit something for me. I think it just made me think a lot about how we see our own place in this world. There's this concept called human exceptionalism, which I bumped into a lot working on this story. It's basically the idea that humans are in some way special or that our existence on this planet is somehow more important than the existence of any other species. That's one of the things that's just fascinating to me about the UAE trackway is that it happens to coincide in time, the seven million years ago, with the time that our lineage was diverting from the general primate lineage when we were becoming our own human lineage. And so many people tend to think of that as an incredibly consequential moment on Earth. And of course it was in one sense, but the trackway and many other examples too from fossils show us again of this thriving teeming ecosystem that was in existence before we became anything like human. Faisal told me this really good story about this uh, ancient Arab philosopher wrote wrote this story, which was then translated into English uh, in the last couple of hundred years. But it was written in the 13th century by an Arab scholar called Muhammad Kazwini. Which was related by Charles Lyell in his uh, Principles of Theology, um, 
which was a seminal book on on geology. And he basically tells the story of this it's this kind of fictional character who lives forever and you know because he lives forever he's able to kind of take a, a bird's eye view over these huge periods of time. And so to just like paraphrase the story he's walking past like a very kind of ancient and popular city and he goes into the city and he asks the people there oh when did when did you all arrive and when did you build the city and because for him there used to be a sea there last time he was there and they say what are you what are you talking about the city has always been here and we've always lived here and so Kazuini comes back 5 centuries later walks past the same place and there's there's no sign that the city ever existed uh, and he you know, ask a group of fishermen, like, how long has this been an ocean? And they say, like, well, this has always been an ocean. Like, I don't really know what you're talking about. And then he returns to that spot in another 500 years and there's no trace of the city and now there's a larger mountain in that area. And I think, like, the 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 kind of purpose of this, this story, this fable, is to say that human beings have a very kind of short uh, memory He's basically elaborating this concept of deep time and the kind of the fact that we as humans are so small we we often cannot comprehend the the great the magnitude of changes that are basically geological changes that take place literally um, beneath our feet and um, that that story captured that concept of deep time really beautifully and one has to wonder there's something Barbara said that I love which is that we we don't think very much about the kind of complex evolutionary histories that animals come with. Um, like there's this focus on human evolution in science, but some animals like elephants have this long evolutionary history that we just don't even think of. Uh, and it, to me, it's kind of like Kazuini's fable that we talked about earlier, um, because the way the way I read it is kind of just as much of a fable as it is a warning. It's very easy to be a character in Kazuini's fable. It's very easy to be that today, and were it not for the fossils, you would not really have a sense of the immensity of the changes that have taken place in the Arabian Peninsula. Just to kind of send this point home, I want to I want to end on this thought experiment that Faisal told me about. Um, he has this way of breaking down huge periods of time that he works with, and. So he told me, okay, if you imagine the Burj Khalifa um, in Dubai, uh, the world's tallest building. Which um, I don't remember how high it is. Do you? I think it's like nearly, a, I, I want to I say it's nearly a kilometer, but that could be somewhere way off. I think it's somewhere up there, yeah. I googled it later, it's 830 meters. Yeah, so if you took the whole, the, the, the height of the Burj Khalifa and you imagine that that represented all of Earth history, so that's all of Earth's history from the Big Bang, the very inception of the world, until now, so August 2020. The amount of height of the Burj Khalifa, which represents the amount of time that um, we've been on the Earth, would be equivalent to the thickness of the paint at the very, very top. The amount of time that we as humans have been on the Earth, so that's everything you know, your friends and family, uh, the invention of the iPhone, the invention of the microwave, every song you've ever heard, uh, the pyramids, the ancient Greeks, uh, humans walking on the moon, humans walking on two legs. All of that is equivalent only to the one or two millimetres at the very top of the world's tallest building. That's it. And then somewhere even further down, the day that those elephants made their trackways in the middle of what we now call the Abu Dhabi desert.
This episode was produced by Alex Atak with editorial support from Zena Duidor, Dana Balut, and Tamara Rasemni. Sound design by Alex Atak and mixing by Mohamed Khizat. Bella Ibrahim is our wonderful marketing director, and Kerning Cultures is a production of the Kerning Cultures Network. I want to take a minute to thank everyone uh, that we spoke to for the story. So uh, Faisal Bibi, uh, Bill Sanders, Barbara J. King and Mark Beach. Barbara's book is called How Animals Grieve. And she also has a TED talk, which I found really fascinating and just kind of really helped me get my head around this story. We also have an artist's rendering of what Abu Dhabi's ancient elephants would have looked like. Uh, we'll put that up on our Instagram. It's at Curling Cultures. Thanks for listening. Until next time.